Welcome to the Transformations with Jane podcast. I'm your host, Jane Nakata, a coach for women who want to live their best life wherever they may be. If you want to hear real stories about people living life their way, and you want to learn about having more peace of mind and confidence, then this is the podcast for you. I hope you'll enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Transformations with Jane podcast. Thank you for joining us again today. Today is the last episode of March and also the last episode we are doing that focuses on the 10th anniversary of the 311 triple disaster here in Japan. And you might be feeling a bit sort of, I'm a little bit overhearing stories about this, but this week I have something a little bit different for you. It's looking forward, yeah? How are we going to be prepared if something like this happens in the future? Now, if you're in Japan, you will have experienced, or especially in uh, the north of Japan or the east of Japan, you will will have experienced a few bigger earthquakes recently. And so I know this topic has probably been on your mind. So it's a great chance to go and check those supplies, emergency supplies, check your fuel tank in your car if that's something you rely on. Also checking your water, is it out of date or can do I need to get more? All those things. Also in this episode, Sarah Jean and I are going to talk about some of the things that people often forget to prepare and some of the things that were the most needed during the 311 disaster 10 years ago. So my guest today is Sarah Jean, as I just mentioned, and she is from America. She's been in Japan for a long time. I think it was, yeah, she said more than 20 years, so 30, nearly 30 years. And she works as a, now she told me the what it's called. <laughs> Let me see what that is. It is a social, what did she say? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Sorry. It's a social impact architect. This is her title. And I think that's a very cool name for what she does. She helps a lot of nonprofits or NGOs to just function better. Yeah. And she had a lot to do with the reconstruction during the aftermath of the Tohoku disaster and helping people who were bringing aid and supplies and money from overseas to connect in in a realistic way with people on the ground in Tohoku. So yeah, she talks a little bit about what that was like and also what she was actually doing on the day at the time when it started shaking. And I feel very sorry for her in that situation. It's kind of a worst nightmare sort of thing. And yeah, so at the moment you can find her teaching about all of these things in her program, Develop Yourself to Inspire Others, or at Temple University Japan and also Sophia University. So I'm very lucky to have an amazing caliber of guests coming on the show these days. Thank you so much everyone for your time. Before we move on, I would just like to give a little shout out to some of my listeners. Yeah. So uh, Amelia, I know that listening to this on a Monday morning is apparently, as she told me, her um, Monday morning habit is to listen to the Transformations with Jane podcast. So I thank you so much for always listening. And another shout out I have is for 
Natalie Nakayama, who I know through Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. And I know you're not in Japan, but that you love uh, learning about Japan and you want to perhaps move to Japan one day. So this is going to be a really useful episode for you as well. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you would like a shout out on this on an episode in the future, then just give me a message on Instagram. So let's get on with the show today. Hi, Sarah Jean. Thank you for joining us today on the Transformations with Jane podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Jane. I'm really happy to be here today. Yeah. So for those listeners who don't know Sarah Jean, could you, yeah, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about where you're from, why you're in Japan, and some of the things we're going to talk about today? Sure. Um, so I actually came to Japan the first time in 1990. I came here on an exchange program at the YMCA, international program. So I was going to be working at the Tokyo YMCA originally for a year or two, turned out to be six and a half years. So um, before I came to Japan, I had experience with uh, like social movement organizations and in the fashion industry to quite different things. But I decided, you know, still in my early 20s, I wanted to you know, travel the world, do different things, um, just do, do something different. And originally, I was planning to go to China in 1989. But after the Tiananmen massacre, that was highly advised against. So um, frankly, I chose Japan because I had a Japanese boyfriend in the fashion business. <laughs> that was you quite, do. <laughs> simple, quite simple, actually. Um, and um and actually, the money in Japan was better, so I knew I could travel to other countries. So there were kind of two competing pressures. Like Thailand looked really good, but the pay was really low. So I ended up working at the Tokyo YMCA for six and a half years, doing everything from teaching English to writing articles for the Japan Times about programs to coordinating events, all different types of things, doing uh, teacher training programs, programs for Ministry of Foreign Affairs for people who were going to go work overseas, educational programs about current issues. So that was quite interesting. And when the YMCA uh, downsized after the Kobe earthquake, um, and because of also a reduction number of small young people, because a lot of young people were participants in our programs, I decided to take a severance package, study Japanese intensively for six months. And at that time, most of my income was from voice acting. I did voiceovers, which was a lot better pay than the YMCA. So I went to school full time and did a lot of voiceover work to save money to go to graduate school. Uh, I returned to the U.S. for close to three years to go to graduate school. But before I did that, I had to have a debate with myself which direction I was going to go. I had three very different things I wanted to do. Uh, one was go back to my love, which is theater. Uh, another one, which was go to my other love, which was human rights in China. And the third one, completely different love, I was thinking about going to CIA, Culinary Institute of America, not Central Intelligence Agency, <laughs> to, to study cooking. So actually what I did is I spent two months with my uncle's restaurant. Um, I, I have an uncle who's an Italian chef. I spent two months like volunteering and doing some work. And then I spent um, some time doing some support work for some theater groups. Um, and I actually got accepted to programs in all three. And I decided to go do human rights in East Asia, Columbia University, because not because I thought I'd be making the most money, <laughs> but because my passion was really there. I still love cooking, 
but I don't like making, I learned I do not like making the same thing every day for picky people. <laughs> I love cooking still, but I do not like having to follow other people's recipes. And it started killing my passion for cooking because I didn't come at it with a business uh, passion. And even though I could have done a master's of fine arts and like social theater completely paid for, there was something that told me this is not what you want to do right now. And um, I just went with my gut. I spent my time in New York. Um, I did my graduate fellowship in Hong Kong doing research on human rights changes in Hong Kong. And I other area I did research on was how um, Japanese civil society, Japanese nonprofits, NGOs been developing at that time, those last 20 years, which would have been the 80s and 90s. And I came back to Japan on a visit. And within a, the month I was here, I got a job at an international organization. And that was in December 2000. And I've been back since then. And since then, I've been working for different NGOs, different nonprofits. 2005, I basically went from working for one organization to working independently, doing projects for corporations. It started with like volunteer day, CSR projects, trainings for companies that are now interested in sustainability and teaching about those issues at Temple University, Sophia University, and then some different international organizations that want to have a presence in Japan, either representing them or helping them build connections with other organizations, helping them develop partnerships. And one thing I do a lot is training programs for JICA, for different organizations. So I do a mixed bag, but I've been in, now it's more than 15 years I've been working independently. And I love it because I love um, working with different people every day. Every day is different. It certainly must all be. On social impact. Wow, wow, wow. I just have to go back just just let's just go back to where you said when you were deciding what you were going to do and you found a way to test out that life, what my life would be like if I did follow through with the training in this area. So there was the cooking, the theater, and then the the human rights um social side of it. And you tested all of those out and found out very quickly actually. I'm not meant to be a chef. I love cooking, but I'm not meant to be a chef. Yeah, that's, that is a very, very good idea. And something I often do with my coaching clients as well is get them to test out these dreams that they have, you know, like <laughs> this dream that you have to move to Thailand or to go and spend a year in France. Why not go to France for a weekend, you know, or for a week and test that out before you go and plonk yourself down there. So I really love that. I just wanted to, to, to go back to that for a second. And so, yeah, now you find yourself back in Japan and I also was really loved your story. And this is quite a different story because we often have the, I came to Japan to teach English and I, I got married and then I stayed forever. But yours is a, a little bit of a different story. And I really like to hear that there are different ways to come to Japan. There are different ways to be in Japan and to come and go from Japan as well. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And I really, you know, I met when I was doing graduate research, I met all of these people online. Email was not online was not as sophisticated as today. I never saw them. It was basically emailing people. And I had visited Japan once and I met somebody that would later introduce me to other people. And it was really a knockoff effect of one of my professors said, hey, do you know Kaori at the Asia Foundation? Contact her. And she said, hey, you know, why don't there's this uh, networking party. Why don't you go there? I didn't know that would lead to anything a year later. 
but I tried to stay in touch with people. I mean, this was really the beginning, you know, 1990s was really the beginning of getting in touch with people by email. So, um, so being in touch with people by email, our, our world was still quite limited in terms of who was regularly on, t- especially in Japan. So I tried to meet with everyone when I came back that I had met, even though I was only going to be here for two weeks. And I didn't know, like a few months later, that would be really meaningful, you know, but it taught me that really early, you know, a school like Columbia University, they really teach you like staying in touch with people, networking, you know, 24 hours follow up, which I'm not so good about now because we're online 24 seven now, right? (laughs) Um, But those were the early days of transferring from sending a thank you letter to sending a thank you email and how important that was. So I learned that it was one of the best things I got out of graduate school, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's still relevant, right? It, you know, your network is is so important. And if I could go back and say anything to my younger self, it would be network more. Get out of your shell. Do whatever you have to do, even if it's, just, you know, quietly just posting a, a message on somebody's Facebook page or whatever. Do something to create or start networks and create contacts. Yeah. And this was actually one of the things that really, I don't want to say discouraged me, but frightened me a bit about going back into the theater world um, was because uh, New York is so competitive in the arts, right? And you have to be so aggressive for anybody to even see your photograph, right? And I am not that person. Mm -hmm. I can be very sociable. I can go to a networking event. And I tend to be very shy upon first meeting, quite different than when people get to know me. And that was really difficult for me, especially because in New York, people come from all over the world to sing, to dance, to perform. Oh, yeah. It's top, not... Top competition there, right? It's yeah. completely different than like LA and New York. I'm, I'm sure it's very competitive in London as well, but you do have people like literally from everywhere, every shape, every size competing like for that one thing. And I'll be like, okay, I'll work the box office, you know, because <laughs> I was just so ah, intimidated by people who are like, they knew they were good. They knew they could do this. And there's 500 other people. Mm. Well, I think, know? yeah, we're lucky to have you over here in Japan. <laughs> and so you, <laughs> you were here in Japan on 311, and that's our theme for this month, talking right. about people's experiences on mm-hmm. 311. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what you were doing on that day and how it have, yeah, and what happened. So I'll t- I know exactly where I was that minute. Like a lot of people, for several reasons, um, I actually, in 2010, was wondering, you know, am I, what am I going to do in the future? Because NGO work was dropping off. The trainings were dropping off. There was a real lull in 2010 about interest in nonprofits and NGOs. And that day, like at four, I think it was four o'clock or three o'clock, I was supposed to have a meeting with three different people who had started their own organizations recently. And I was going to have a panel discover discussion like April 10th or April 9th um, with them. So I was going to bring them together um, to have a little orientation meeting, find out about each other. And so I had, it must have been at four o'clock because I had a little bit of time. I said, you know, I'm going to go to the pool at two o'clock. And I came out 
And I was in the shower literally at the time when the earthquake happened. Oh, my God. Yeah. At the gym. Worst and nightmare. The I'm sorry. You're not, right? <laughs> naked, naked and lathered. Completely yeah. lathered up. Okay? And the walls, the stalls in the shower were like cards, were like a card house. I have to add one other little thing. I had had some problems with my knees at the time. And that day was the first day I hadn't worn a brace on my leg in three months. So I hadn't gone upstairs. I hadn't, you know, alone. I was freaked out because I hadn't been able to walk properly. So we are told to get out of the shower. I had to re- I went, literally went outside in clothes with soap on me because the gym, we were all evacuated and we were all trying to be careful. And once the shaking stopped, went back in to remove our soap <laughs> uh, from our bodies. Um, and I started getting a series of text messages from one of the people I was going to meet. For some reason, he was the only one who had a phone that was working. Others of us, whatever, we were texting each other. We got all the texts that night, like 50 texts from each other. Can't get there. Where are you? But my one friend, Nat, he's like, he kept sending texts all day. I'm at Starbucks. Where are you guys? Am I in the wrong Starbucks? But he wasn't getting our messages. So there was a little panic that then hit. My husband is based in Shizuoka. And our big concern always is that when the big one comes, Shizuoka is gone. Somehow I was able to get through to his office because I called immediately, lathered, half-dressed and all, talked to his staff. Sorry, it gets me a little emotional. And this is in Japanese, but I'm like, hi, how's everybody? And they're like, oh, we're fine. What's going on? I was like, oh, he's really busy right now. He can't come to the phone. Um because they didn't really feel anything. So it was very, and I was like, oh, that's very nonchalant. Okay, but that's fine. Um, they had no idea until like the, like maybe six o'clock when all the patients, when all everybody had left, because he's not in an office where they're on computers or anything all day. So they didn't really see the scale of it till all the patients left for the day. And once they realized, he said to his staff, oh, to my wife happened to call anybody like oh yeah she called but we didn't know why (laughs) i was like you didn't call me back after this and he's like we had no idea because i was quite emotional because actually i wasn't able to get a hold of him till like after 6 or 7 p.m because all the lines were jammed um and the same thing with my family in the u.s they were calling me constantly but all the lines were jammed So in those several hours, I live on the 20th floor, actually, so I couldn't go up to my apartment because, as I said, I hadn't walked up um, any stairs in three months, let alone 20 flights of stairs. So what did I do? I had my computer. I sat in the lobby of the gym as long as they would let me, and all the other obachan, ojichan, who are in the gym, who did not have a computer, came and sat around me, and we watched what was going on in Tohoku. It was completely silent in the lobby, but everybody was crowded around my computer, and that's we realized this is much bigger. At some point, they kicked us out of the gym, <laughs> and um, we went coffee shop myself, and like we didn't even we never talked to each other. Just kind of people were crowded around the computer watching whatever news was on. I made the decision the next day. I've got to leave Tokyo and go to she's come to Shizuoka. Uh, It's my husband's hometown because I started getting messages from European friends of mine. They were evacuated the 12th, French, German, and some Canadian because the information about the nuclear reactor, they had a very 
much more, I would say, I don't want to say alarmist, but much more concerned information than we had. Um, for Americans, there's really too much of us in Japan to be evacuated. I knew that. I know this kind of stuff. Um, but I decided, okay, take a day, figure out what's going on. Um, by the 13th, I had been getting so many emails and calls from people overseas, what to do, what to help. I set up a blog in English. I basically translated information from, because my previous work with NGOs, I knew people doing disaster work. I knew people who were doing community-based work. So I had sent like hundreds just emails to all different organizations. What are you doing? What do you need? And I just set up a page. These organizations need money, donate in Japan, you know, here. Um, and then for people in Japan, these groups need this. You can do this. Um, so that was like the 12th, 13th. It was like Saturday, Sunday. By Monday, I got a call from maybe a U.S. foundation, a U.S. NGO. Can you help us? We're coming to Japan. Can you translate for this interagency meeting? And I didn't go, I think, come back to Tokyo until like March 15th or 16th, something like that. There was a big meeting um, there, maybe from 150 organizations, mostly Japanese and, and American, a few maybe British organizations. This U.S. organization, AmeriCares, thought they were going to need translation, as it turned out, because there were so many international organizations, including Japanese organizations where people who spoke English, very few people did not speak English. So it was conducted in English um, with a few people doing translation. And then that morning, actually, a foundation in the U.S. through, a, again, a former co-worker in the U.S. said, we would like to hire you to just help us get information at first. What's going on? What's needed? They set up a, uh, a fund, so a, a foundation that set up a, a Tohoku, a recovery fund that over the that year, they raised about $8 million dollars. And then after I the first week, just sending information, sharing info, they said, okay, we want you to be our Tohoku Recovery Fund uh, point person in Japan. So I did that for three and a half, four years. And my whole life really changed <laughs> from thinking like, is there a future in this NGO world to um, just constantly talking to people for the next six months every day reaching out to people saying, what are you doing? What do you need? Creating Japanese materials, doing information sessions in Japanese. How do you apply for a grant from the US? Um, and going to really different perspective on the whole nonprofit world in Japan. I'm, I was used to being the project person asking for money, but now I've got to explain all of these guidelines and in Japanese. And I, that's what we created all these materials for like how to do it, how to apply, how to get money. Um, and then working with other, particularly American organizations, because there's a lot of uh, U.S. organizations that had staff here for a few years, um, but they didn't necessarily know the NGO world or know or understand Japanese at all for how do we make this work? Because people expected, so looking at from, say, particularly American NGOs who've done international relief work in, say, developing countries, their expectations were completely off because this is a developed country. There's all this infrastructure, but how do you manage the bureaucracy was a challenge some people had. And then there was another area that I tried to help some of the Japanese disaster relief organizations with. A lot of their staff who have experience overseas never experienced working on a disaster in Japan. 
So they didn't know how to manage the bureaucracy either. The local community groups that do that, they know how all that stuff works. But like the big ones, Save the Children Plant, their Japanese staff who works in Cambodia, South Africa, they didn't necessarily have experience in Japan. Quite different. It's not just about language, right? <laughs> you know, it's not just about knowing disasters. Um, and my first trip up, actually, I canceled the first time I went up because it was just so close afterwards and I wasn't feeling well. And in the end, I'm glad I did because there were so many tremors that night. I know that it it took much longer and there were so many aftershocks. I, I went later with different NGO staff and the first day I spent with people from Kansai area, but all of them were, were younger Japanese women, have their masters from overseas, they're working overseas, it's their first time working in Japan, and these elderly people kept referring to the gaijin. That was them. I was gaikokujin. And they're like, gaijin, they keep saying gaijin, gaijin. I was like, that's you guys. That's not me. Because people from outside the town are outsiders. Gaikokujin, I'm a person from a foreign country. And I could see because their way of speaking, you know, their way of behaving was just so different from these 80-year-old village, village people, you know, these farming, fishing village people, than these young people who clearly, you know, their, their way of talking about the world, the way of talking about disaster, so different. So that was also big education for me that I tried to share with some of my Japanese compatriots. Um, wow, I can just but, imagine that, like, a, yeah, a bunch of young, from Kansai, overseas educated people rocking up to a little village up here in Tohoku. It, they were essentially aliens. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> essentially from another planet. Yeah, yeah, you know, and this wasn't extreme, like they didn't have like funky tattoos and big hair. It was the winter, so everybody's covered up, right? But still... It's the way of talking. It's the way, uh, it's not that they were impolite. It wasn't that they didn't know Kago, but their world, their perspective on everything is so different. Yes, that must have been interesting to be, yeah, you were like a bystander for that and just going, oh my God. Yeah. yeah and I'm right? just like, I'm looking at that like, huh, this is interesting. Okay, I see. And I saw this, this several times also with like Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians, you know, like Nikkei people from other business people who came over who want to do this and want to do that. And we're ex great intentions, bring a lot of money, a lot of resources, which were greatly needed, but who often tried to explain to me how things are done in Japan. And I learned to just, again, nod my head, say, okay, um, and ask questions. The first few times I'd be like, you know, guys, I've been here for more than 20 years. I know I don't look Japanese, but you know, Japanese. <laughs> so, but I live here. I know you're from LA. I know you're doing something really important, but just, just, just listen to me. So I stopped doing that and just saying, so have you thought about this? So, or what's, what's behind this? Opening up the conversation rather than saying, no, this ain't going to work. Um, I don't want to say just let them learn that and waste their resources. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Mm. <laughs> yeah, obviously you had a really important role there of being kind of a bridge between the two, the two, yeah, helping them to meet each other somewhere in the middle potentially um, to get mm. things to get things happening. Otherwise, it would have just been a lot of waste, uh, a lot of motainai, a lot of wasted resources, a lot of wasted time. 
when that's not something that we had at that time. Right. So I guess you saw, obviously you saw firsthand what was needed up there and you saw what people didn't have, where people were caught short, perhaps Mm -hmm. the knowledge they didn't have, or even the things they didn't have. So, you know, as we are going into 10 years on, what do you think is something that, or, you know, some of the things that we need to be thinking about now in the case, like, you know, this thing called the Nankai Doraf, right? Yeah. And as you know, with your, your family in Shizuoka, that must be very, mm-hmm. you know, a forefront in your mind. Um, there's something they're predicting. What are some of the things that we need to be doing that perhaps are not really very well known? So um, I'll bring up something. I'll start with something really simple. A good friend of mine from Kobe said, I remember when the Kobe earthquake happened, we were working at the Tokyo YMCA. And she said, you got to have cash. Yes, have cash. got to have mm. cash. We don't have, we're not the people who have a lot of cash at home. I say that I've never been the person to carry a lot of cash on me either. But um, you need to have some bit of cash stashed somewhere accessible, like in your emergency pack. Um, Because she talked about that then. And there's the same issue for some people in Tohoku. You need to have cash. Your emergency package whatever it is, has got to be light enough to carry. So we have two of them. One that's like an easy pickup thing. That's where you have your cash, some copies of your ID, those types of things. And then a larger, we have a larger duffel bag in the case that say we're stuck here. So there's kind of two things. If you need to leave quickly, you have this, you know, bag that's only a few kilos you can easily put on your back and get out. And then a bigger bag that if you are, say, stuck at home, it has your food, warm clothes, your underwear and socks, because this was something I heard people talk about all the time, the first month, clean underwear and socks. You know, you can wear the same fleece. You're right. That is not something that's in my pack, right? (laughs) Yeah. Clean underwear and socks. Yeah. Your fleece you'll keep wearing, but how many days are you going to be happy wearing the same Mm. underwear and socks, right? Especially if you don't have access to clean water in the toilet. Um, You know, and your big pack is also near your box of water in your home, right? You can't carry enough water in your like little emergency pack, but in your big pack, um, and that's got to be in a safe place in your home, right? In a place that is least likely to collapse. So we have it, for example, in our entrance closet, because a closet is small and the smaller pack in the bedroom, because we figure most of the time that we're at home is actually in the bedroom, right? Um, There is no other one space we usually are. Um, So that's one thing. Another thing, I mean, that's like at the time, but there's a lot of small other preparation things besides your packet, uh, your pack, your your go bag, and then your, if you're stuck at home pack. And that's really understanding the hazards in your neighborhood. You know, the hazard map. I know in Tokyo, because I've done workshops using that booklet that the Tokyo government gave out for preparation, because it's great that the Tokyo Metropolitan Government made this, you know, 125-page book about what to do. But... (laughs) It's a lot of information and and I worked it out like to create like a half a day workshop that people get a lot more from that than reading the booklet because you have to, I put people in role plays what to do, but think about your own area where, where you mostly are at home and at work. If you're in Tokyo, it's easy in some cities in Japan, it's easy as well to go into the city hall website and download the hazard map and see where you live. Where I 
my apartment is in Tokyo and where we are in Shizuoka. We did that a long time ago. It's probably good to do it again. <laughs> now, after, you know, this earthquake we had last month, which wasn't that bad, but we should be thinking again, right? Um, another thing is the disaster um, drills. Everybody has them. We had that here in Shizuoka yesterday. Unfortunately, I was on a Zoom call. I did not join. The doorbell kept ringing. Come on out. Don't hesitate to join. I would say even people who don't understand any Japanese just to see where is the water, where's the safe space. If those are the only two things you get, that's valuable. Even if you don't understand who's in charge, whatever, find those two things. Where is the evacuation space and where is the well? I think, you know, water and a safe space, a roof over your head and water to survive. If you, if that's all you get, you walk away with so much more than you know now. So I think it's really just looking at it like based on the preparedness measures at home, your pack, um, information, which you can get like online. And then in the community, um, where's the water, where's the safe space. And then really the fourth one is your own network. Do you have like a buddy system? Many of us don't have, you know, extended family here if we're not Japanese, but who are the friends? Like who are the three or four friends that you will contact each other? You'll check on each other. I think that's the other thing to think about, you know, and some of us do Definitely. have family, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have, you know, spouses, kids, grandparents, of course, I'm not saying exclude them. <laughs> I was, I was assuming that was mm. part of the plan, but our extended family are our friends here, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Making sure you, you have an understanding with maybe one or two. If, if something's not going well, can I come to your place? Yes, you can. We have an understanding. You don't need to ask, just show up right. or, you know, it can just save a lot of time and a lot of feeling uncomfortable when you're stressed. And when you're, when these things are happening, you don't have time to think about stuff like this. Really, you do not. This is not the time to be making decisions. You need to make those decisions now. Yeah. And Remind yourself, and even if you did make those decisions 10 years ago, make them again and with right. potentially new information and refresh your memory, I think, is one of the most important things I learned the other day when we had that big earthquake yeah. here that was just off the coast of Fukushima, right. was, wow, I have not thought about some of these things for a long time. And that was a good reminder. Thank goodness we didn't have any major damage or major you know, problems from that particular or tsunami, thank God. Yeah. Yeah, it was a chance to refresh my memory about and talk to my kids about, okay, so if we are at the beach or we happen to be near the coast when something like that happens, what do we do? What do we look for? Where do we go? Or even if we just visit, we're just visiting and nothing happens, what do we do? We still look around and just notice, okay, there's a there's a hill up there. You know, just notice those things so that you don't have to think about it in the moment. You just go. And I just actually watched something on NHK two nights ago. I just happened to turn on the TV. Never turn the TV on to watch TV, Japanese TV, but I happened to turn the TV on. And there was a, a show on about who evacuated and who did not evacuate successfully in the Tohoku tsunami. And so they very thoroughly researched this. And I'm sure you know some about this, about, you know, which families and, you know, which areas did well and which ones didn't and why not, potentially why not. So yeah, practicing and also helping people around you by saying, I'm evacuating, come with me. And yeah. you can potentially save a lot of, a lot of lives of taking people with you by just calling out and saying, I'm evacuating, or I don't feel safe in this location. Let's evacuate to someone even maybe further away, even safer. 
And who knows, like even just one person saying that, that can radiate out to 50 to 100 people to that information can save up to, you know, hundreds of people. That was a really eye-opening thing to see. Mm. Yeah, like really just thinking about it, not to be panicked. Some people think about it as a negative thing, but I don't I because I know that when chaos happens, people panic if they don't know what to do. But if you know where... That's true. If you know where to go, you don't have to say, oh, I can't access the internet. Well, no, you're not going to be able to just start Googling where is the local Hinanjo, the evacuation center. But if you know that it's that elementary school or this gymnasium or that's the hill, I actually do this now because now that I don't, I live, I mean, it's about 10 kilometers from the beach, but whenever I go to the beach, I look for those evacuation spots, not as a freak out thing, but if I'm here, I don't have a car. It's easier for me to run up there than it is even if I had a car because traffic is going to be bad. And this is something for people to keep in mind. There's areas in Tohoku where a lot of women died in their cars because they were going to go pick up like kids and husband and and grandparents. But the traffic was, and some of these, you know, seaside villages is so bad. Um, But also, you know, they didn't know it was going to be that high, of course. But if you, so hopefully some cities have done a better job at reevaluating evacuation plans by not having only one evacuation route. But if you don't even know what the route is, it's not time to start looking on Google Maps, right? And you've got a minute to go, right? (laughs) So just noticing, just noticing also, as you said, the people around you. I visited um, one elder care center where most of the people were infirm. So there's no way they would have been able to be evacuated on their own. And neighbors went to the home and they didn't even say anything. Apparently, they just came. They carried elderly people on their backs up the hill, and everyone survived. And some of these elderly, uh, and some of them were severely disabled um, elderly people, just said, you know, they wish they could say thank you. But it was so fast, there was no time for discussion. Neighbors came in, they put them on their backs, young people, middle-aged people, they went up the hill and they all survived. And the water came up almost to the ceiling in this center on the first floor. So without that, those neighbors, those people would not be alive, right? So we don't have to know yeah, each other. Yeah, you cannot coordinate at the last minute. That is something they obviously practiced. And yeah. that's amazing that they've, they've done that. That preparation yeah. is just so, so important. Yeah. So if you take anything away from this episode today, it's be prepared. Don't avoid it. It's not that you're you're, may, you're wishing any bad luck on yourself or this country. It will give you so much peace of mind. And I can say that too. When that earthquake struck last week, uh, two weeks ago now, I think it was, I was like, I'm okay. I have everything. I'm Mm going to be fine. Whatever happens, we're going to be okay here. We have gas, we have food, we have all the stuff that we need. And I didn't worry about that. I was just worried that, you know, it's shaking. It's not fun. Right, right. Yeah, it's not fun. fun. But I just knew that I wasn't, there wasn't going to be no other problems for us in that respect. So that was really, really nice. Well, that's almost all the time we have today, Sarah Jean. But thank you so much for giving us a little insight into what it's like, what it was like for you to be part of the the reconstruction and and things with what happened in Tohoku and your experience. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to have been in the shower. That was my one. I I couldn't on that day. I could not take a shower. I just refused. I was like, I'm not getting naked 
you know, that night, you know, when after yeah. the earthquake, I said, I cannot get naked. I'm too scared. I just, I just didn't have even have a shower. Um, and yeah, you were naked at the time. That's, that's yeah, complete nightmare come true. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure, and thank you. yeah, is there something you would like our listeners to do? Yeah. You know, besides thinking about your own plan and these things you can do, I'd like to direct everybody to my Facebook page. It's just Sarah Jean Rosito, two S's and two T's. It's the Italian Spanish spelling mix on Facebook or my site, which is sarahjeanrosito.wordpress.com. I have up some different videos. Um, by the end of March, I'll have up more videos of different events related to 311. Um, hopefully my DRR disaster risk reduction uh, little video will be up there too. Um, after uh, 311 and getting involved some different groups. A few years ago, we started a training program for people who want to have a social impact to open to everyone called Develop Yourself to Inspire Others. Develop Yourself to Inspire Others is linked to my Facebook page, but it also has its own page. Simple, Develop Yourself, Inspire Others. Alrighty. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, we will link those in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming today, Sarah Great, Jean. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was the interview with Sarah Jean. I hope that you found some something new to add to your disaster kit from that little discussion. Perhaps you do not have socks and underwear. I know I certainly don't have them in mine and that needs to be rectified. Cash is another one and that is that was a huge thing here in Iwaki City when the disaster happened 10 years ago. Nobody had that much cash on them and the phone lines were down. There was no way you could buy things using Denshi money or, you know, these, you know, credit cards didn't work. You could only buy food and things with actual cash. So having some cash is an excellent idea. She also talked about hazard maps and this can be sort of an, a bit of an overwhelming topic, but get, definitely if you have not been provided with one from your municipality, then go and find out where it is. It's probably online and you can zoom in and see where you live, where you work, where your children go to school um, and see what are the hazards, what potentially could happen there. Could it be a flood, a landslide? Could it be that, you know, if there was an earthquake, there may be the chance of liquefaction, all of this sort of stuff, tsunami danger, where are the hinanjos, where are those evacuation centers, if you need to use them. A fire is another thing that we've seen recently, um, mountain fires that have come down into town, and, um, you know, people have had to leave their houses, that sort of thing, uh, volcanoes, <laughs> you name it, Japan has everything, tsunamis and typhoons, it's yeah, all going on here. So thinking about all of those things so that you can be prepared. And as Sarah Jean said, it's not to be morbid or to, as I said, to wish these sort of disasters upon yourself. It's that you can have confidence that you can get through these disasters and having those things sorted out and decided in advance will give you a lot more confidence and just a lot of peace of mind in your daily life. That's for sure. So let's get that done. If you do get something done, please just tag me over on Instagram, Transformations with Jane, and let me know, hey, thanks to listening to you, I now have a supply of water and food that I didn't have, or I now know where to go if um, tsunami comes to our city, or I figured out where to go on when I go to my favorite beach, you know, where would be a good place to evacuate to, those sorts of things. I'd love to hear from you. 
So that's all for this week. Next week, we have Catherine Gronau on the show. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing that episode as well. A really amazing woman who is part of the community of women doing really great things here in Japan. And yeah, well, I will save all the good stuff for that uh, for next week, but please tune in again soon. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.